Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey here bringing you episode 70 of the podcast that dives into talks delivered at BossConf that stand the test of time. This week, serial founder, software engineer and writer of software development blog Joel on Software is Joel Spolsky. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Joel Zbolski is founder of Fog Creek, Trello, Stack Overflow, and alongside Neil Davidson, was one of the original movers and shakers behind a little thing called Business of Software Conference. Trello was acquired by Atlassian in 2017 for $425 million and, as of June 2021, Stack Overflow has been acquired by Process, a European private equity firm, for $1.8 billion. Joel was one of the first tech entrepreneurs to talk about the business of software and the process and thinking behind how you grow great products and great companies. In this talk from BossConf USA in San Francisco, Joel flies in the face of what is often perceived as the norm and says that building new features does add value to your product. Happy listening. How many people could possibly like even know about the decisions that, that, that software asks people to make? I'm going to talk about all, all decisions and, and the kind of, kind of endless um, decision making that you have to go on. See, even if you click, this is what I love. QuickBooks has recently downloaded the R8 product. Even if you click Install Now, you then have to make the exact same decision again. So, so it's bad enough that you have to make these decisions that you have no possible way of knowing the answer to. My whole inbox is completely full of people asking me to make various decisions about various things. That's why that stuff is in there, because those are decisions that I have to make. Some of which, looking at them now, this is a screenshot from about a month ago. I have no idea what, what, what to do about any of those. Okay. Uh, software uh, is constantly asking you questions and asking you to decide some things. This is a good one. This comes up in Outlook. If you have a recurring appointment and you've made some exceptions to the recurrence by, let's, let's say, one week you changed it, and then you go to try to change the overall recur. Oh, it's just too boring. I can't tell you. I'm not going to go into it. But the point of this is that it is not OK. It says, is this OK? And your choices are OK and cancel, but they don't give you a choice for no. And this is one of those famous dialogues, They're, Windows is full of them, where clicking OK means to cancel something, and clicking cancel means not to cancel something. Look at the wording of that, that, that dialogue, uh, the famous Windows message box. Um, uh, so yeah, no, it was not OK, but that wasn't one of my choices. Uh, very painful decision, actually. Um, if you just stop trying to do work for a while and go on Facebook to hang out, you have to decide who you're friends with. And I hate that. There's nothing more painful than trying to decide if I'm actually friends with, I don't really know who Damien de Caracosa is, but he's got the Serbian Imperial Court of Exile going there, and he stands bravely in the face of adversity. I, some of these are easier to decide. Some of them are a little bit harder. LinkedIn is supposed to be a more professional, and there's people that you want you to connect and join their network and endorse them and all that kind of stuff. So in order to avoid making any decisions, I just say no to everybody on Facebook and yes to everybody on LinkedIn. And it's awesome. I got like a million business connections. It's terrific. Um, sometimes software uh, that, that we write asks you to decide stuff that you shouldn't even have to decide. For example, Rhapsody has this music search engine, and you go and type the name of something, and, it, and you need to choose from the drop-down list whether that's an artist, a track, an album, a composer, a video. Like, who cares? Search them all. Why do I have to then choose? Like, who's ever, when is the last time you saw a search form, right? It's just a search box. And then it won't find it if you don't get it right, um, which is sort of ridiculous, even though it has 69 results, which is also kind of weird, because it's really just the name of a song. There should only be one. All right. Uh, notice that iTunes doesn't make you make this stupid decision. There's just a box, and you type it in there, and it finds the thing. Can't even turn off your computer and go home if you're frustrated by the possibility of all these decisions that your computer is requiring you to make, and if that in some way is driving you crazy because you're afraid that you'll make the wrong decision. Turning off your computer has six options, like right there on the menu. And then there's also to press the on-off button. You could close the lid unplug it, or throw it out the window. So there's 10 different ways <laughs> to turn off your computer. 
And then you've just got paperwork to deal with. This was the paperwork I had on my desk when I was working on this presentation. I had to choose a healthcare plan. And, and if you've ever done this as a business owner, this is extremely frustrating because there's all kinds of terminology there like deductibles, coinsurance, out-of-network, in-network prescription, UCR. I don't know what any of this stuff means. I don't know how to decide. They do seem to have different prices. Um, I can decide based on that. One of the decisions we had to make was between the Freedom Network and the Liberty Network. Also, different prices. That turned out to be kind of hard. To decide if all this decision-making is stressing you out, I put up a little temporary break. It's a picture of a dog with a towel. So you can, it's just a little relaxation technique. Okay, so what I'm really gonna talk about is, is where do these decisions come from? It comes from a debate that we're having right now. Yay, it's like one of those internet wars between simplicity and power. Um, uh, unfortunately, no matter how much you try to use, if you go to blogs, if you read what, what, what tech writers are writing on the internet, if you read uh, sites like Joel on Software, like Y-Count Combinator, like Hacker News, to try to get actual information and to learn something uh, about your field, um, there is the problem that there is also a group of people there who are doing that for entertainment purposes, and what they like is conflict and war. So here's my conflict war. It's the war conflict between simplicity and power, and simplicity specifically says, when you design your products, when you design, design your product offering, you should pick one thing and do it well. You should simplify as much as possible. Uh, and, and there's this 80-20 rule or 90-10 rule, which is sort of similar and it's all baloney. But it says that 80% of the people only use 20% of the features. And therefore, if you implemented 20% of the features, you would still get 80% of the market. Um, I'll show you why that's not true, but that's the simplicity argument. And then there's the power side the power way of doing things, uh, which is to give people lots and lots of features, lots and lots of options, lots and lots of choices, which are frustrating, uh, and lots of capabilities in, in, in their software. Um, so that's the power, that's the power features kind of side, is this theoretical Swiss Army knife. It comes with all kinds of different, many, many different kinds of can opener and bottle opener and knives and files and stuff like that. There's a little tiny saw which I've never really been able to use ever since. Every time I got a new Swiss Army knife, I would try to find a piece of wood that I could saw with it so I could use that. But I could never find a piece of wood that was like small enough <laughs> that that little saw would work. And by the time you finally did, it was like a twig. You could just snap it. So <laughs> I don't know why they have that. And that's part of the problem with doing a bunch of things not well is that you give people a saw that can't really cut anything. Um, and the opposite is, you, you guys, I bet, I bet you all know what this is, right? Does anybody know, wanna? Yes, sir. It's a nailer, it's a, what kind, a, hard, a floor nailer. It's a hardwood floor nailer, and it only serves that purpose. This is sort of funny, because I showed that in Amsterdam, and nobody knew what it was. And I guess they don't buy the cheap old thin hardwood things that you get at Costco and <laughs> put, put down hardwood floors uh, as much in Europe as they do in the States. But, um, okay, so that's a hardwood floor nailer. It does exactly one thing, and not only that, it doesn't even do it. You have to hook it up to a compressor, I believe, and you need this sort of hammer kind of thing. And it's like the hammering is the whole point. So what is, but, but, uh, but it does a perfect job of just doing that one thing. And you would certainly not want to put down a hardwood, uh, hardwood floor um, with, one of, with a um, Swiss Army knife. So what's the problem with giving people the Swiss Army knife is that features leads to choices, and choices leads to decisions, and decisions lead to war and unhappiness. Um, let, me, let me show you a little. I got a little uh, a movie clip here. Um, from, from You've Got Mail. Can we have the sound up on here, maybe? Almost. To make six decisions just to buy one cup of coffee. Short, tall, light, dark, calf, decaf, low fat, non-fat, etc. So people who don't know what the hell they're doing or who on earth they are can, for only $2.95, get not just a cup of coffee, but an absolutely defining sense of self. Tall, decaf, cappuccino. Um, so that's uh, uh, Tom Hanks. There's the quote from You've Got Mail. And uh, he's sort of extolling the virtues of the American scheme of giving people lots and lots of choices and letting them define themselves through the way they construct uh, a coffee drink, and, and th this is certainly a trend in retail of giving people, you know, 47 different kinds of toothpaste or a million kinds of coffee, or, um, you know, my favorite example is these burrito places that you go into, and you practically have to give them the recipe for a burrito if you want. 
to get a burrito out of these places. They're like, how do you, well, don't you know how to make burritos? Isn't that why I came? Uh, so this seems great. Chena Iyengar and uh, Mark Lepper uh, wrote a paper that was sort, sort of seminal, which I want to talk about, a little research project they did. They went to Drager's down the road here in uh, Silicon Valley, and they asked, uh, and this is the kind of, this is one of those grocery stores where they have 250 kinds of mustard. This is a peer-reviewed paper. There really are 250 kinds of mustard. Somebody must have checked. Um, 75 varieties of olive oil, 300 different kinds of jam. And what they did is they set up these little booths where people could sample the jam. And they did an A-B test between there are six kinds of jam to choose between and there are 24 kinds of jam to choose between. And before they did this, they got a bunch of graduate students to taste all the jam and make sure that they were all good. So um, six versus 24, what, what, what do you expect happened? The only variation here really is how much choice, how much do you have to choose between? Well, the, the booth in which they gave people or the, the table when they set up 24 kinds of jam, more people stopped to sample the jam by a substantial portion, 60% rather than 40% actually stopped to try the jam and see what it was like. It was maybe a more attractive display and it looked kind of more copious and bountiful. However, when it came to actually purchasing, the numbers are astonishing. There was a 10 to 1 difference in how many people purchased the jam based on how much choice they had to make. 30%, uh, and this is actually 30% of the, um, not the samplers, 30% of the initial people that went into the store, 40% uh, of them stopped, and th three quarters of them actually bought a jam if they only had to choose between six kinds of jam. On the other side, 60% stopped, and just a tiny, tiny percentage of them were willing to actually undergo the mental stress of having to choose between 24 flavors, and who knows what it is, the sense of impending loss that maybe you should have really gotten the jalapeno jam instead of the olive flavor. Barry Schwartz wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, and sort of brings up this uh, study and a lot of other studies in a lot of other areas. Um, one popular and important one right now is that it seems to be that the more choices you give your employees in their 401k plan as an investment vehicle, the less likely they are to actually save for their future. So um, th there's a very strong new trend um, that is increasing savings rates dramatically of just giving people one or two choices for their 401k, like you know, conservative, not conservative, or just give them whatever the appropriate retirement bracket is for when they're going to retire and let Vanguard do the work. Uh, and this makes people sort of less worry about the decision and more likely to actually make a choice. There is the paradox of choices that while theoretically it makes us all better off, it also uh, is stressful because of the fear that you're going to make the wrong decision. Now, based on this idea of choice and options and so forth and features and capabilities are bad, um, the, the smart folks at 37Signal, a software company in Chicago, wrote a book called Getting Real. Um, uh, and here's what they said. And they, they've basically been the advocates, and you all know this, they've been the advocates for simple software that does one thing and does it well. Um, and here's how they explained it. They said that the conventional wisdom is to beat your competitors. You need to one-up them. If they have four features, you need five or 15 or 25. If they're spending X, you need to spend XX. If they have 20, you need 30. So what do they suggest that you do? They say you should do less. Do less than your competitors to beat them. Solve the simple problems and leave the hairy, difficult, nasty problems to Microsoft. Instead of one-upping, try one-downing. Instead of outdoing, try under doing. Now this, the truth is this goes against every single speaker that we've had here at the Business and Software Conference, so I'm kind of beat, beating up on an underdog here anyway. Um, but what the hell, it'll be fun. So here's what they suggest. This is, their, this, is their, uh, this is their mantra. Less features, less options and preferences, I'm all for that. Less people and corporate structure, okay. Less meetings and abstractions. It's weird that they put these on one line. It's sort of like saying, you know, like, less anger and garlic. They're not really in the same food group. But okay, meetings, abstractions, and less, uh, less promises. That's cool. Uh, so they made a bunch of products. 37 Signals has a bunch of really nice products. Very, very simple, very clean, easy to use. Basecamp, high-rise, backpack, campfire. You can try them out uh, on their website. Or if you have Notepad, just make an HTML page and put like a big text area in it. And that will give you a taste <laughs> of what these applications do. They're really they're simple, they're really nice. Uh, you, sh you should definitely try them. But they do one thing, and then when you say, hey, I got this other thing that I needed to do, it doesn't quite work. So this is the debate. Um, less features, um, that would be the less features is the sort of the 37 signals mantra, defining sense of self, and that would be uh, what Tom Hanks is, is calling for in the Starbucks uh, 
model. I will call that the jam versus coffee idea. So um, this is something that uh, my manager said to me at Microsoft once. And, and what's interesting is that it seemed like a tautology. Every time you have an option in a dialog box, what used to happen when I was a beginning designer is uh, I would design something, and everybody would say, but what about dot, 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 left-handed squirrels? And I would say, oh, yeah, I forgot the left-handed squirrels. And then I would make some kind of different thing, and they would say, yeah, but that's not going to work for the right-handed humans. And then I'd say, all right, well, there will be an option in a dialog box, and you say squirrel, human, and you slide a little slider, and I would invent a new kind of slider just to make it confusing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Andrew Quadnitz, who is my uh, first manager, said, you know, every time you have an option, you're asking somebody to make a decision. And I said, uh, yeah, that's the point. You know, we'll give the, them the decision. Um, but then I realized that people don't like to make decisions, and that this is a bad thing. So look at what's going on in option dialog boxes today. This is Internet Explorer. Um, there's a choice on there that says enable carrot browsing. I mean, first of all, none of these things, I don't know what any of these are or why you would care or why, would, why you would want to choose between the left-handed squirrels and the right-handed squirrels. But what is carrot browsing for new windows and tabs? Does anyone even know what that is? Do, you, do we really have to enable that? Why is it only for new windows and tabs? What if I want carrot browsing on old windows and tabs? How old do they have to be? <laughs> A week? Why is carrot browsing capitalized? Uh, it's just, it just makes you kind of wonder. And what ends up happening is that people go into this dialog box by mistake. They check a few things by mistake, and their computers become broken in an un undeterministic way. And they call on people who say, you're going to have to get a new computer. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how to fix whatever is wrong with your Internet Explorer. Anybody use Visual Studio in this audience? There must be some developers here who remember. If you just go into the main tools options dialog right now in Visual Studio, this is what you see. Down the left-hand side, this huge tree, an enormous hierarchy of options, configuration settings, and it's like some summer intern spent you know, two summer internships on this, just the tree on the left-hand side, not to mention all the crap that's been put on the right-hand side. But what's interesting here is look at the kind of choices you have to decide between if you want to use Visual Studio. On the right-hand side, how many items do you want in your recently used list, this is on the first page. I didn't have to dig for this. This is the first thing you see. How many items are on that file open, recently used files? Six? Ten? I don't know. Who cares? Does anybody even care? Just all. How about all of them? <laughs> oh, that won't fit. OK, fill the screen from the top to the bottom. And if there's a little more than that, maybe make a scroll bar or something. I don't even care. Just alphabetize them. That's all I want. That's not a choice. No, you're not going to get them alphabetized. All right, can I put 99? No, your maximum is 10. <laughs> Completely useless configuration setting that nobody can possibly care about. Um, before all you web software developers get all high and mighty about, we don't have this problem on the web. Here's the Gmail configuration page. Same kind of thing, a whole bunch of tabs with a whole bunch of questions. Here's my favorite, always display external content, such as images, sent by trusted senders. Um, this is one of those things that, that nobody knows how to answer, and the people who do know how to answer will not have enough information. So, for example, w what are they talking about here? Like, we're mostly technical people. We understand that there's this issue that there have been bugs in the parsers for various image formats that have been, it has been possible to use, um, uh, or I guess it's external content, which I guess sends a, what does it do? It, 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 it's like a, like a little image that you put in an email, and it will contact the web server, so they'll know that you open the email. But it is a trusted sender. But what does trusted sender really mean? I mean, who trusts them? How that, there are a lot of different definitions of trusted sender. Um, that's a confusing thing, and it's not something that anybody who uses Gmail is really capable of answering. So why is it possibly there? Um, it sort of reminded me. We'll, we'll figure out why it's there in a minute. It's. It sort of reminded me of this old um, uh, this screen that I saw once uh, on the Yahoo store a long time ago. So this is 2001. I'm sure uh, that they fixed this. This um, code was rewritten to not be in Lisp. So this couldn't possibly be the same code anymore. But look what it is. There's a guided tour. It says the, this guided tour, the guided tour was actually the sign-up wizard for Yahoo stores. And it said, we're going to take you through some sequential steps. Please do not use your browser's back or load buttons. You remember, this was a long time ago when we told people this all the time. Or don't resize the browser window, because that would refresh during the tour. If you do, the tour will simply restart itself. Now, I was a web programmer in, in 2001, and we had ways of making user interface experience that survived the user pressing the back button. It didn't blow you back in smithereens and throw everything away. But 
Um, not if you use continuations in Lisp, I guess. So we found, this is the, this is the killer, we found 10% of the people who take the guided tour forget this warning and hit back or reload out of habit. So don't <laughs> hit back or reload. Okay? Thanks. Why, why is this here? It's not working. You measured it. 10% of the people are still hitting it because they're human and they think that they've learned that back is undue and they make a mistake and they're like, oh, oops, they hit back. Then they're like, ah. This is here to prepare those people to understand that what? That when they hit back, it's their fault, not the programmers at Yahoo. It's their fault that they got blown back to smithereens and that they have to start all over again. So presumably they won't write in saying, oh, I want to notify you about a little bug. I was doing a thing and I hit back and everything was erased and I had to start over and I did that four times. It was really frustrating. And they got that email from 10% of their users and put this up there to try to reduce that possibly to 0%. Um, and what that reminds me of, and this stuff is long gone in the Yahoo store, but it reminds me of uh, this dialog box, which I saw yesterday which is, do you want to allow this program to make a change to your computer? Why are we asking that? Do you know if this is safe? Do you know if maybe a virus got in there somehow? No. It's, it's this confirmation dialogue saying, do you want to do what you just did? To which the answer is always yes. So why are you asking me? Well, it's so that when, when, not if, when you accidentally install some kind of nasty spyware which gets into your bank account and transfers all your money to Bernie Madoff's canteen account at the penitentiary, <laughs> when you do that, you won't blame us. You'll blame yourself. And this, I thought, is a little bit inhumane. It's a little bit inhumane. It's like, it's like a public relations dialogue so that you feel bad about all those bad things that happened to you. Because if, if this is stressing you out, I have a picture of a kitten and a duck. <laughs> or a chick. Or... Nothing to do with anything, just to relax if you were get, 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 getting angry about that. So where does... Little diversion, where does this idea, why does the 37 signals idea, why is it taking hold? Uh, why, uh, why is that idea that, that decisions and so forth are, are, are bad and that you should have uh, a, si a simple single-use products, uh, wh why is that so, so popular? I think the reason is because there's a lot of startups. And these startups have two or three, this is Fog Creek, have two or three people in them. And uh, just a few guys in the room, they don't have, you don't have a lot of resources. And everybody is telling you correctly that you need to get something out to customers right away. You need to, and so you've got three, you don't, it's not like Microsoft where they throw 800 people on a clone of QuickBooks and then shut it down and it never goes anywhere, but it's still, they still spent, you know, I don't know how many developer years on that. Uh, you're just like a little startup. You've got three people, you've got three months, you're not going to be able to do very much. And so you, and you've got to get it out to customers and start getting feedback right away. So you make bug tracking made easy, or you make very simple bug tracking, or bug tracking made stupid easy, or beautifully simple issue tracking, or bug tracking software that doesn't have to be complicated, or bug tracking made simple for the first time. Beautiful simplicity in bug tracking, uh, simple task and bug tracker. Bug tracking software made so easy that this clip art kid can use it. <laughs> and this one was called Dead Simple Bug Tracking, Bug Wiki. I tried to click through on the link, but it was really dead. So. How do you get into the situation which we were in? So I'm not, I'm making fun of all these people. But uh, the re reason you get into this is because you got three people and you had three months, and that's a lot for a startup. And when you try to make a feature list, these are your choices. You got simple. No, these are your features. You got simple, simple, and it's just really, really, really simple. And that's what you tell customers. And you read somewhere on some blog that this was great to have simple software, and it works because the customers say that is awesome. I friggin' love simple. I want it to be simple. I back in you guys. I got this bug tracking software and it's complicated. I want simple. And then they ask you the next question. Here are some examples. Wait, I need to be able to attach a picture. And can I, I can't search. Are you serious? There's no search function? Fogbugs, when did we get search? 3.0? 3.0. Maybe 4.0. Anyway, <laughs> you can't search. No, you don't have to search. It's real simple. It's just a list of what you're going to work on. Yeah, but I want to search it. Ah, but it's simple. Well, can you make it simple with search? <laughs> and that's what everybody says to you, and they don't buy your software. There is kind of one exception, which is that sometimes you're going to go, and um, uh, uh, this is a funny story from NetApp, actually. Uh, you're going to ask somebody to buy your software in an enterprise. You're not even going to understand what they're saying to you, because they'll say, son, we're Georgia Pacific. We make trees into toilet paper. And that, uh, you're like, How did, what? <laughs> you make trees into toilet paper? <laughs> OK, so I guess you don't buy bug tracking software. Got it. Let me move on. The, the, the toilet paper people are looking for solutions. They need 
tree into toilet paper making software <laughs> and everything that, that, that goes around that. And they probably have bugs, but, um, but they don't know that. So you, you're not going to sell to the enterprise, especially when you have like two people and you've done simple. And then you find somebody that says it's perfect. And it's usually somebody actually, uh, I hate to say this, but it's somebody that has not actually used software from this category before, so they don't really realize what software in this category needs to do when you actually deploy it. And so when they see simple, it's very easy for them to understand because they don't have to spend six hours figuring out all your features. And that's OK. And you make some sales. Um, but then you learn the one lesson uh, of Fog Creek software that Michael and I have learned over nine years, which is that, and, and we actually did a very detailed, uh, exhaustive search of the literature. And we, um, we gathered data from literally tens of thousands of software companies about all their products and all over time and correlated that neatly. And we had graduate students working on this for six years. And this is a lot of data, so just hold on to your seats. The correlation between features and sales, there you go. The more features you have, the more you sell. I don't, there is nothing clearer than that in the chart of the, all the output reports that you get from QuickBooks uh, at Fog Creek, is when we came up with new versions that added new features, our sales went up a lot. And the reason is obvious, because you have this universe of people banging on your door, and they're asking you for things which are completely reasonable. And if you can say, yes, I can attach a picture, they'll say, OK, that's perfect. I will buy that. And if you say, yes, you can search, those people will say, it's perfect as well. Now, Georgia Pacific, forget it. You're not going to ever sell them anything. I don't even know that's there. there is always somebody that you're not, you know, you're just not doing what they need to do. But adding features. There, there's sort of this obstacle course. Some people call it the, the funnel, the customer funnel. But there's an obstacle course that you're running with a, with, a, with a lead that just heard about your software. They have all their requirements, and you kind of need to. And at any point, if you don't meet one of their requirements, they're going to drop out and go look for something else. So conclusion, simplicity versus power. This is a little bit too facile. Uh, power does actually make you more sales. But I'm not going to leave it at this. This would be depressing because Decisions are hard, and options are hard, and complicated software is hard, and all those things make people unhappy, and you have to show them pictures of cats. So I want to give you a model, some kind of idea, theory, that you can use to try to bridge this gap, solve this dilemma a little bit between the simple products and the complicated products. You've got to first ask yourself, what do people care about? Cheerleaders. No, that's not why those are cheerleaders. They, they care about their team. You have to have a model, some kind of model in your head for what your customers are interested in. The Visual Studio user is not, does not care about the recently used file list ever, 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 ever. They care about their code. Let me give you an example, a more useful example of what people care about. Imagine a new college student has just arrived um, in, in the dorm room, and he's bought a computer at the university bookstore and set it up, and it came with Internet Explorer, and the home page is bing. And so the first thing he's going to do is install Firefox, because he's smart. And you say, why are you installing Firefox on that computer you just got, freshman year student in the dorm room? Why are you installing Firefox? Well, I want to get on Facebook as soon as I can, really, and, and start meeting people. Um, OK, why do you want to meet people? Oh, you know, because that's how you go on dates. This is college. You know, you go to parties and go on dates. And um, you go on dates so that you have a chance of hooking up. And you hook up so that your DNA can make a copy of itself <laughs> somewhere else. So that's the chain. It's not direct. You may not be thinking about this, but believe me, your genes are. OK. Same thing with Twitter. Everybody on this room is tweeting. Like, as I speak right now, somebody was about to hit send. And, uh, and, and we're, we're not college freshmen, and we're not really thinking about going on dates. And that's not, that's not the kind of people I hang out with on Twitter, at least. But, um, uh, but there is a social, a human need to be gregarious, to be social, to meet other people. And part of that comes from the fact that we are evolved as a social species. And we're evolved as a social species so that we can meet people, go on dates, hook up, and make copies of our DNA. That's what evolution does. Anything you do, buying brand new nice clothes and going to the gym to work out, all of those are things are things that you do in order to become more attractive so that you go on more dates and you can hook up and make copies of your DNA. OK, so there's this category of human activity. Well, actually, it's not just a category. So why do you make a budget spreadsheet in Microsoft Excel? Why are you sitting there using Excel to plan next year's budget? Why are you using PowerPoint and tweaking all the slides to put on cool gradients? Why, for the love of God, are you using Microsoft System Center Configuration Manager 2007? Well, these are all things you do for work. 
and you want to do a good job at work so that you can get promoted. And you want to get promoted so that you make more money, and you want to make more money so that you can hook up and make copies of your DNA. So you can, you can pretty much create, this is a single root object hierarchy uh, on, it, on, on its side. Um, and it's just one way of modeling what do people care about at any time. And, and, it's, and it's indirect. I don't want to say you're using Excel to copy your DNA. You're using Excel to do a good job. And so that's what you care about when you're using Excel, your job and, and being awesome, as Kathy Sierra said, at whatever it is that you do. Uh, Richard Dawkins put it this way, uh, we're survival machines. We're blindly programmed to preserve uh, the genes. Um, and, and he actually kind of turned something upside down for me. Like I used to think, and this is the way I guess I was taught biology in high school a long time ago before Richard Dawkins said this, uh, was I used to think that DNA is a mechanism by which organisms, including humans, make copies of themselves. So for example, you have lungs, which are a mechanism by which human beings breathe air, and you got your heart, which is a mechanism to pump blood and get the air to all the cells, oxygen, I guess. And you got a pancreas, which I don't know what that does. But, and you also have DNA, which is a mechanism by which you make additional copies of yourself. And that is the way we were all taught in high school, I think. But what Richard Dawkins says is quite the opposite. The genes have us to make copies of themselves. Because that's all evolution cares about, is that these genes be able to make copies of themselves. And they're everything that they're going to do, and they are in charge, believe me, is going to be about making new evolutionary versions that are better at copying themselves. And if they could just climb up on a Xerox machine and make copies of themselves, and that was easier than having these complicated human beings with all their foibles and their Excel spreadsheets, they would have done that. But this turns out to be a pretty good way to make copies of DNA. Or as Jamie Sawinski, who is one of the early engineers on the Netscape project, puts it, your use case should be, there's a 22-year-old college student living in the dorms. How will this software get him laid? And uh, that, was, that was in regards to the first, before we had social media, everybody was talking about groupware. Um, so you have to have a model for what people care about, because when you give them features and choices, they have to be features and choices that directly relate to them making them awesome, them doing whatever it is that they have to do to support their work, what they care about, their job at that particular moment. So imagine for a moment that you're a programmer, this is Jimmy, and you're working at Intuit, although he doesn't, but anyway, let's say this is Jimmy at Intuit, and you just spent a year implementing this new R8 release of the QuickBooks software. It's some, how many, how many people use QuickBooks actually in this audience, just for kicks, probably a lot of you. Do you how many of you click later, later on that dialogue, like 100 times, right? This is like, there's already like a tenth of this room is having the same experience as I did with that stupid dialogue box. But what is Jimmy thinking? He's thinking, I just spent a year putting together this new patches and releasing them. It's probably a whole team of Jimmy's actually. And they're pretty excited about it. And he's thinking, you know, I don't want to install this prematurely because bad things will happen. And let's let the user decide when to install QuickBooks R8. I'll just call that little message box function and say, do you want to install? latest version, and I'll have a dialogue, it's a dialogue box, I'll have a dialogue with my user across space and time, which is cool, uh, we'll have this conversation. And a conversation across space and time doesn't really work that well. So think about, that's, that's Jimmy's perspective. I'm going to have a conversation with my users. Now what's the perspective of the users? There's a million possible things, there's a million possible people, 10% of the people in this room we're in this situation probably several times of seeing Jimmy's dialogue box. And what was going on when you saw that? Let me just make something up. You're the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. And um, you're, you're sitting there uh, um, uh, you know, working away. And you're, or actually you're not working. You're flirting with your secretary who you're having an affair with. I won't use the technical Germanic term. You're having an affair with your secretary. And she's kind of leaning over your desk, and you're kind of flirting, having a good time. And you suddenly notice your wife coming down the hallway, and you hear her Manola Blahnik shoes click, click, clicking down the hallway. And you're like, oh, shit, my wife. Now, then the second problem occurs, because you forgot to tell your secretary about your wife. And your secretary says, wait a minute, what do you mean wife? You told me you were single or divorced or whatever the case may be. And then you say, oh, shit, for the second time that day, oh, my god. And she's getting closer and closer and closer. Now, your secretary is smart, and she says, I'm going to go tell your wife about this affair unless you give me $100,000 right now on the spot. So now you're relieved because finally something is going right. You're the CFO. You can just print a check for $100,000. You've got QuickBooks. <laughs> One, it's just a hypothetical. Now, 
So uh, your wife's getting closer and closer, and you're kind of sweating and trying to launch QuickBooks, and it's not. And what, ha what, do you, what, what happens is Jimmy's dialogue comes up. <laughs> and it seems like a really, really, really bad time <laughs> to, install, to install QuickBooks. And this is the most important thing to remember when you're a developer. When you're having a conversation across space and time with one of those users, that's not a conversation. That's not a dialogue box. You're interrupting them. You're asking them about something they do not care about. It is not what they are working on. They got a whole inbox full of crap that they have to work, worry about, that some of which they do care about, actually. That is their stuff. And so as the computer, which you are, you're writing the code that's driving the computer, you don't actually even have a right to set the agenda for what users you do. You have no right to set the agenda. If you put up a modal dialog box, modal meaning you cannot pr progress the user cannot progress until they answer some question in the modal dialog box. To some extent, you're claiming a right to determine what your users do, which you probably don't have. And so that's probably something you should think about. Is there a way to make this not modal? modal? This is sort of borderline unethical to require a user to do something in a specific order when, when there is no such requirement. You're not in charge of what your users do. So now we actually have a model of good features versus Bad features, right? The good features are the ones, now that you have an idea of what your users care about, where they are on that tree, what's the right-hand node that they're trying to get to, what are they trying to do now, what do they care about? And those are good features. And if you give them lots and lots of features to make them awesome at what they do, they're going to be happy, and they're going to enjoy those features, and they're going to like them. But you can also give them bad features, and those are the kind of things that interrupt users, where interrupt means causes them to think about something that they don't care about at that particular time, and they don't really know about. So as a designer, and I say this many, many, many times, you're, you're making decisions. That's all, design is all about, this took me a long time to finally learn. I thought design was like you have a blank sheet of paper and you make a pretty design. Design is actually the act of deciding stuff. Because, and good design is designing the right stuff. There's an easy way you can give people a word processor that has every possible configuration option. You just give them a programming language for word processors or a programming language and say, build your own damn <laughs> word processor. It'll work any way you want. You can have the spell checker with squiggly red lines or orange lines or anything you want. But that's like a little bit too much configuration. So the way we make our money is by making the right decisions for people about the stuff that they don't care about so that all they get to do is sit around and decide between calf decaf. When you give people a choice of any sort that they don't care about, you're not doing your job as a designer. So that's, I think the answer is that there are good features and bad features. And a part of the way to eliminate, to create, to create the possibility of uh, like powerful, useful, cool stuff that people want without bothering them with all kinds of nonsense, like what Jeffrey Moore might have called context, like stuff that's just wasting their time. Like hide all that stuff, get rid of it, make, make those decisions for people somehow. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, I, I think I'm missing a verb in that sentence. Doesn't matter. The Salginatobel Bridge. This is, um, this is an, exa uh, an example of, of one way of learning this, or I, I sort of was enlightened into a way of thinking about this, by Alan de Botton, who's written a whole bunch of books about all kinds of esoteric things, but this one was about architecture. And um, he wrote about the Salginatobel Bridge, which is in Switzerland somewhere, and that's what it looks like, and it's uh, just incredibly cool looking, uh, very modern. And I mean, that's a huge span, that's a highway. Um, and he compared it to the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which is much, much older, of course, and it's in England. And they both are accomplishing the same task, but here's what he said. He said, both bridges accomplish daring feats, but Mayart's possesses the added virtue of making its achievement look effortless. There's something effortless looking about what this bridge is doing. Because we sense that it isn't, we wonder at it and admire it all the more. The bridge is endowed with a subcategory of beauty we can refer to as elegance a quality present whenever a work of architecture succeeds in carrying out an act of resistance, holding, spanning, sheltering with grace and economy as well as strength, when it has the modesty not to draw attention to the difficulties it has surmounted. So look at those words, the modesty not to draw attention to the difficulties it has surmounted. You don't pop up a dialogue box asking people, hey, I just wrote some code. Would you like to run my code that I just wrote? Yeah. Uh, or, uh, um, or think about kind of any kind of uh, half of the, if you go into tools options in any open source framework, half of the things that are there are stuff where somebody contributed a piece of really useful functionality that everybody wants and everybody turns on and is awesome and has no user interface, completely invisible. And 
they just want to somehow surface something in the user interface that shows, hey, I was here, I did this, yay, yay me. But they can't because what they did, I mean, the best kind of feature is one that's completely and utterly invisible. So that's the concept of elegance. It's, it's, a, it's a very specific term. I'll show you a couple of ways that I use the word elegance. I'm not talking about like, you know, like a nice Chanel dress and a, um, that, that, that's a different kind of elegance. Um, uh, one way that the designers uh, refer to the, sort of the same concept of elegance, of taking stuff away or hiding stuff, uh, the designers often quote Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He said, a designer knows he's achieved perfection, not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's, well, actually, we don't really need that on this slide or that. All right, never mind. I don't need the slide. OK. Uh, let, let me give you a, a typical example of taking away to achieve elegance. This is my, my former phone, the Nokia E71. It's a very, very, very good smartphone. Um, and it has four choices for whether or not to ring. The four choices are normal, which is ring, silent, which is not, outdoor, which is to ring loudly, I believe. And meeting, I don't know. I'm not Finnish. I don't know what they do in meetings in Finland. But it must not be either ring or don't ring, because these are the four choices for whether or not to ring. There is also a volume for how loud you ring, but, um, but, but that's a separate feature. Now, because there's so many choices, there's a menu you choose from. And because there's a menu that you choose from, you have to use a keyboard. Because you have to use a keyboard, you have to unlock it, because this is one of those. The Nokia is one of those, um, what do they call it, candy bar phones or whatever. So it's got a lock function. So you have to unlock, get into the menu, choose the item from the menu, up, 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 down, 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 up, down, 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 select, OK, and then relock your phone and put it back in your pocket. Because there are four choices for ring or don't ring. Um, now, by comparison, um, can everybody see this in the back, this little switch? Here. No, just kidding. Um, the iPhone has a teeny tiny little switch. Ask, uh, probably 50% of you, you have them. So. Teeny, teeny little ring, don't ring switch. And it's an actual flip switch. It's physical. You can feel what position it's in. When it's in the vibrate position, your phone vibrates for a second, so you know that you got it into that position. It's really kind of tiny and awesome. And what they've done is they've taken away all those choices that didn't matter, the outdoor and the meeting. And this, I'll bet you there's more on the Nokia that weren't on my mind. But uh, um, the, they've taken away all those choices. And what you're left with is just two choices. And therefore, it can be a dedicated switch, even on the fairly simplistic one, quote unquote, one button iPhone. It's just one switch, because there aren't a lot of choices there. And that's a classic example of elegance, is getting rid of stuff that we don't need anymore. Um, one thing that actually surprised people with the iPod, I definitely remember this was one of the first consumer electronic products that came out. The original iPod did not have a power button. There was no way to turn it off. Why not? Well, there's a pause button. I mean, how much, it's not playing music. How much more off do you want it to be? Of course, you try to tell that to a flight attendant on US Airways. They don't really, they don't really get very far. But, but that was the Apple idea. It's not playing music. That's its function. It's not playing how. Right? Um, what's kind of interesting, actually, that pause button that they have, I was looking for the stop button. Why was I looking for the stop button? Why do people even still have pause and stop? You can still buy a lot of MP3 players that have pause and stop. There's a lot of online like little widgets that you use that are media players, um, like software media players, and they'll have stop and pause. Stop is the square, right? And pause is the Twin Towers Memorial. Sorry, too soon? OK. Um, <laughs> the, the difference, why do, they, why, do, why do both those things exist? This is an emulation. All these buttons were in introduced as a standard interface for reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. Now, on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, you have a stop button, and that turns off the motors and disengages the heads. That's stop. But when you hit play, it has to restart the motors and re-engage the heads, and there is a pause of about a quarter of a second before music comes out. And anybody who is using a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and needs to produce music on the spur of the moment, maybe they're editing something together, or maybe they just want something to start immediately, this is not good enough. And so they added a new functionality to reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders called pause, where the motor kept running, and these little hands came out and grabbed the tape and held it in place so that they could let go of it and it could start playing immediately. The trouble with these little hands is that the hands are holding the tape, and the motor's still running, and so this tape right here is stretching. So you can pause on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. They have an option for that if you need that. But you shouldn't if you don't need to, because it's going to slowly degrade your tape by stretching it. All right? So this is an artifact of analog, vinyl, whatever that stuff was made out of, reel-to-reel -reel tape, which nobody has used. Ampax shut down a couple years ago. You can't even buy this stuff anymore. And an artifact of 
a physical manifestation still perpetuates itself in all these user interfaces that still have stop and pause, even though that doesn't even make sense. So I tell that story because a part of what's interesting about creating elegant things that don't make people choose between pause and stop is discovering why do we even have pause and stop and off and whatever, standby and hibernate and whatever else we have. Um, the OK button started disappearing from all kinds of places. At some point, people said, hey, maybe we don't need an OK button. And it just started kind of disappearing from those dialog boxes. Uh, the checkout process. Amazon figured out that you don't need a checkout process. I'll go into that more. And a lot of people realized that this isn't the kind of home page that people want. The ideal home page would just be a box that you type in. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about elegant code, because this is software. Um, that's not actually, I put that up originally thinking that that's not, this, isn't, this is not elegant code actually, this is my personal I hate this thing. People that write this code instead of that um, because I guess they're still used to basic which is a programming like the original version of basic where a boolean is sort of nothing other than the input to an if statement. Um, um, so that's obviously a lot, a lot cleaner but that's just normal, that's not elegant. Elegant is when you take the same aforementioned basic programmer, and you tell them to copy a string using a language, a modern and, and, and cutting edge language like C, this is how they might copy a string. They'll be like, well, all right, I'll copy each of the characters one at a time by making a for loop. Um, so what's wrong with this? First of all, anybody want to shout out how fast this is? Got to be some programmers here. How, how slow? N squared, right, this is N squared. Um, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Come ask me afterwards. Um, this is the code that you're taught to use to, to, to do this elegantly in, in C these days. And the reason, and when you look at that, you say, wait a minute, where is the body of the while loop? The body of the while loop is missing. Well, that's, that's my definition of elegant code. I'm not saying all code should be elegant. Just my definition of elegant code is when the, there appears to be less code there than you might need. <laughs> but actually, it's all there. In other words, we've taken away a whole bunch of stuff and yet it still does everything that you expect it to do. That's the definition of elegance, is removing stuff. This is, this is 21 lines of code, 22 if you count that import statement, written by Peter Norvig, uh, who's a chief architect, senior technical scientist at Google. Um, this is, you know how when you go to Google, if you type something and you spell it wrong, it says, did you mean blah? This is that code. It's not the actual code running on the Google servers. That's probably 9 million lines. But this does all that. It actually has all that functionality uh, built in. And when you look at it, you say, wait, did you mean, like you type something, it's a typo. And it then uses the entire internet to find what you probably meant and what you must have typoed. And this is really all you have to do to do that. And it doesn't look like you should be able to do that in 21 lines of code. And people start reading this, and they see a whole bunch of little definitions. And they say, OK, I see you're setting some stuff up. Where is page 2? And it's all, it's all that last line at the bottom there, second to last line. So um, it is actually kind of amazing how, uh, um, how this works. And part of this is a testament to the conciseness of Python. But it's also just sort of my definition of, of elegance is hiding things. Um, now, what you care about is elegance in features, elegance in products, elegance in user interfaces. And there, you're going to do a lot of work behind the scenes and under the covers. You're going to struggle. You're going to spend eight months instead of one week to eliminate one choice that the user used to have. So let's go back to Amazon one click. This is patented. Um, a lot of people were upset by this patent because they said, that's obvious. And actually, I hate to tell them, but it was not obvious. Nobody thought of it, really, before Amazon did it. There weren't, there, nobody else had this. Uh, and it wasn't that obvious. And, and, and sort of my proof is that when Jeff Bezos told his team to go create one click where you just, on the page, you click a button and you get the book. That's what he said, one click. They said, oh, that's a great idea, all right, boss. And they went away, and they came back with something that was, I think, four clicks. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I didn't mean one click, add to cart, and then take you to the cart. I meant one click, and the book that you just clicked on is put into a box and sent to your house. And they said, oh, OK. And they came back, and they worked a lot harder, and they came back, and they showed him something that had two clicks. <laughs> and he said, which part of one don't you understand? <laughs> And they said, no, you need a confirmation page. Somebody might click by mistake. You can't just start shipping things to people based on they followed a URL in their web browser. That's absurd. And he said, go back and friggin' make it one click. And they did. And what they realized is that the way they were imagining this was there's a decision tree. And the decision tree is, did you click or did you not click? And then if you clicked, did you click by mistake or did you not click? Or did you click by not mistake? And they had been thinking this as 
because you might click by mistake, they had been thinking you click and then you confirm. And w the way they turned it around is you click and then you can undo, but that part is optional. And since most people don't click by mistake, like 99% of the people are not clicking by mistake, just giving them a nice undo on that page that you click through to will make it so that only the people that make the mistake, which is a tiny fraction, have to use two clicks. Everybody else gets one click. And that's a really neat way of turning it around. There's, of course, the other problem, which is, what if I want to buy three books? Well, all right, click on each of them. You get three separate packages. And the way that the Postal Service works, that costs three times as much to ship. And so what you really want to do when somebody orders something is you want to kind of queue it up and hold on to that order. I think Amazon holds it for 30 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. And then if anything else comes in in the next 30 minutes, you reset the timer to 30 again and until they stop and they go away and 30 minutes have passed without you ordering something and then they take all those things and put them in a box and send it to you. That is obviously way more work than just you click, it goes in the cart and you, and you ship it. That's a lot more work. And the work behind the scenes to create that undo and to create that buffer where stuff is waiting for you for 30 minutes is a lot of extra work that it takes to get this little tiny bit of simplicity. So it's a game of inches. You have to fight really, really hard for every inch of increased usability uh, like this, uh, like the Amazon one-click kind of thing. So this is, um, uh, this is, this is pretty much uh, all we were going to talk about today. Um, simplicity versus power. Should you follow the, uh, um, the, the sirens who are saying you should do one thing, do it well, make something really, really simple, really, really easy, versus should you do something really, really powerful, the features, the options, the capability. What we saw is that the trouble with the power is that you cause people to make decisions and make them unhappy. The trouble with the simplicity is that you don't sell your software. So there's those two problems. Uh, but there is one approach you can use to, to, to try to resolve this. There's one thing that you can try to do to, to make life a little bit better, which is to figure out what is the elegant solution. And the way to figure that out is say, make a model. What do my users care about? What do they want? How am I going to make them awesome today? Uh, think of all the Kathy Sierra stuff. They don't care about the instruction manual operating instructions for the countdown timer. They want to know how to take a picture that you're in. That's why they're using the countdown timer, because they want you to be in the. And so it w if, as soon as you think about teaching somebody how to make a picture that they are in, then you want to teach them about where to put the camera and how to station it and how to hold it and how to get in it and how much time. And you're teaching them about different things other than your menu. So you're making them awesome. And to do that, you have to have a model for what they care about right now, what they really care about. And that's the area where you give them the features. And when you do give them the features, you fight for that elegance and that simplicity. You fight for hiding the, the complicated functionality under the surface, sort of, of your user interface so that you only give them one choice instead of six. But they still have all the same options. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not sign up for the free Boss newsletter, delivering fresh talks, news articles and hot takes on current events straight to your inbox. Join thousands of other smart folk now at businessofsoftware.org. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.